rather we're in Ezekiel chapter 7. Let's start, let's pray before we begin. Father, in Jesus' name we ask that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit and give us understanding of your word and speak to us today, Lord. Ezekiel was speaking to Israel about 3,000 years ago and and uh, Lord, your, your word, it comes to life when we are in it and I just want you to, we want you, Lord God, to, for it to come to life for us to speak to us for where we're at in the year 2013, Lord. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 1 says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, An end has come. An end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you and I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways. I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will repay your ways and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, so uh, Ezekiel here, again, it's about five years before the destruction of Jerusalem. And he, as well as many other Jewish people, had been basically stolen from their city where they lived, stolen, taken out of their homes, chained up and dragged away 900 miles to Babylon. And in the strangest way, they were protected. They were protected because the city they were taken from is about to be destroyed. Isn't it amazing sometimes how the Lord will bring about some things in our life that, that appear on their face to be devastating. And we don't know at the time that those circumstances are going to be the very thing that saves us. They were taken 900 miles away. That's about a three-month journey at this time. And they were brought back to Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq, And it is there where this prophet, the prophet Ezekiel, is speaking to the people. Now, there were, again, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem prophesying similar things in Jerusalem still. Jeremiah would be, Jerusalem would be destroyed. Jeremiah is going to be saved from that. But um, uh, Jeremiah is, is, is prophesying to the people in Jerusalem, look, this city is going to be destroyed. Ezekiel is... Uh, prophesying the same thing in Babylon, that city, Jerusalem, 900 miles away, is going to be destroyed. But they are surrounded in people in both places who are saying, no way it's ever going to happen. Why? We're the chosen ones of God. We are under God's favor. We're the chosen ones of God. And they... They just, it, it, just as today, certain people who are sort of born 
in the church. They're born into a Christian family or a Christian denomination, and they feel just because they're sort of surrounded with the trappings of the church, they just feel like certainly God is in this thing, this religious thing that we're in. These guys were doing the same thing. They were just, just because of their history and they had the word of God and they, they had the temple, they had the glory of God, they just assumed that God was going to, um, would, would always be in what they were in. And, and so it, verse 2 says, and, and the end has come. And in this chapter, that's repeated about seven times. The end of what? The end of God's long suffering. Again, I think I mentioned this last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is defined, agape love. The reason it was, is defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is because that word agape, we hear that word a lot, but it was used infrequently in the Greek language. If you go back and study Greek literature, you don't see that word showing up. So Paul literally has to define it and he defines it where he says, love is patient, love is kind, love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. He's defining it. But the very first part of that definition is love suffers long. And in the Greek, it means love takes a long time to boil over. So, you know, uh, you may have a teacher, uh, have had a teacher in school or something, uh, or you may have a boss at work. It doesn't take them a long time to boil over at all. All you have to do is a little mistake, and they're boiled over. They've lost it, and their anger, the heat, has boiled over. Well, the Bible says it takes a long time for God to boil over. But the, and, and what it means here, when it says the end of come, it, it, it's the end of it not boiling over. In other words, the, his patience has run out, and... Uh, judgment is is going to come. In verse 5 and 6, thus says the Lord, a disaster, a singular disaster, behold it has come, an end has come, the end has come, it has dawned for you. Now, in the King James, it says it watches for you. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds really creepy. The end is watching for me? But that's, that's what the King James says. It, it, it says it's dawn for you. The word dawn, it means it's like the morning, the dawn, it's coming up. It's, it, it's coming. You're going to see it. God is holy and he just can't take, uh, he just, because of his holiness, he'll wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. But eventually justice is going to be meted out. In Luke chapter 12, we uh, read this morning in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, I come to send fire on the earth and how I w- wish it were already kindled. And, and, and so it's the same idea that God is just. And though, uh, it, it, and though the ultimate act of justice was on the cross where God's wrath poured out um, on Jesus, all the judgment that was, w- was due us, J- the Bible says that God still rules the world by righteous judgments. And, and so at this time, 
here he had warned over and over and they had gotten worse and worse and worse. Their hearts had become more and more hardened. Verse 7, it says, doom has come to you. Doom has come to you. Now that word doom, very interesting Hebrew word. It means circle. It means circle. And, you know, what does that mean, a, 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 a circle? Well, it means that basically in Jewish history, Abraham, God had told Abraham that the Israelites would be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and that God was waiting until the fullness of the sins of the Amorites in the area of Canaan for the Israelites to go in and displace them all and, and where he would meet judgment on, on all of them. And now here that circle, and that's, indeed that's what happened. The Israelites went and displaced all the people who were living in Israel and basically judgment came upon them through the Israelites. But now there's been sort of a whole circle of judgment where it's back to the same thing after uh, a couple thousand years, here judgment is returning, except this time Israel is the subject of the judgment. It says, the time has come, a day of trouble is near, and not of rejoicing in the mountains. Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury. Wow. Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger on you. I will judge you according to your ways and I will repay you for all your abominations. And, you know, when we read verses like this, it is healthy for us as believers in Jesus Christ to, to take a step back and, and remember, wow, I'm glad that God doesn't re repay me for all my abominations. The word abominations mean exceedingly great sin. I'm glad all that fury was poured out on Jesus. So I didn't have to suffer the fury of God. And, and it says in verse 8, again, now upon you I will soon pour out my fury. And that's why Jesus had such a difficult time in the Garden of Gethsemane knowing that he was going to the cross the next day. Remember this morning in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Why was he so distressed? Why was it? It was because the fury of his father's wrath which he had never known would be poured out upon him. But now we have just a picture of this, that, uh, of this same fury that, praise the Lord, we don't have to experience that because of Christ, but it would be poured out on Jerusalem. It says in verse 9, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. The King James says, I am the Lord who, which smiteth. And, you know, we, we, this is one of the names of God. We, we, you can actually go and find all the names of God, that, you know, on the Internet or whatever. 
or in a, a, a Bible dictionary, Jehovah Shalom means God is peace. Jehovah Jireh, God is our provider. Jehovah Rapha, God is our healer. Well, we don't hear about this uh, name of God very much, but it is one uh, nonetheless. Jehovah Nakal, or Jehovah, Jehovah Naka, the God, I am the Lord who strikes. Now, it is comforting that that, that is what the Lord will do with our enemies. <laughs> So we can draw comfort from that, but it really, this is one of the names of God in the Bible, Jehovah Naka, the, God, the Lord who strikes. Verse 10, behold the day, behold it has come, doom has gone out, the rod has blossomed, pride has budded. Pride has a way of budding. It's what it does. It, it starts stirring around. It germinates just like a seed. And it starts getting away with stuff, pride, as it grows up. But there's a time where it buds and it just gets, it just, it, it buds, meaning it, it takes that sort of brazen act of pride. You know, I think of so many acts of adultery where it, adultery really is born out of pride. It's just that it's just all about me. I've, you know, someone's a man or woman has entered into a, a marriage covenant, but there's, it, but, but pride gets in. They they think that their life is really it's all about them. And and when pride buds, it's that brazen act. And I don't want to necessarily pick on adultery. It's it's greed. Uh, it's uh, any number of different kinds of sin. Pride as a way of budding after a while if it's not smitten. <laughs> I thank God that, you know, he has me on a short leash. <laughs> and man, it just seems like when I start acting out a little with pride, boasting here or there, God just nails me so much. He just nails me. I wind up on the ground and he's like, didn't you know, Steve, to whom much is given, much is expected? I, I, I praise the Lord for that. But pride left unsmitten, eventually it'll bud and it's just gonna be a disaster. And, and, and that's what happened in Jerusalem. God sent the warnings over and over again to the people, repent, turn to God, repent, turn to God, repent, turn, they didn't. And eventually it just budded. And we'll see some of what actually happened in chapter eight. It's actually shocking what was going on in Jerusalem behind closed doors. That's, uh, that's what chapter eight is about. Violence has risen up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain. None of their multitude, none of them, nor shall there be wailing for them. The time has come. The day draws near. Let not the buyer rejoice nor the seller mourn for wrath is on their whole multitude. For the seller shall not return to what has been sold, though he may be alive. What's all that about? What does that mean? The seller shall not return to what has been sold. 
Anyone? Anyone? The year of Jubilee. See, they had this really great deal in the Old Testament law that you would sell your home or whatever or your property, but really you could not permanently sell it under the law. It would come back to you the year of Jubilee, which happened every 50 years. But it, you had to wait to the year Jubilee. So let's just say it's, the Jewish calendar is different. Let's just say it's a, the calendar we use. Was it a Roman calendar? So the year 1900 Jubilee, 1950 Jubilee. So if you sold your, your property in the year 1925, it was coming back to you in 1950 under the law. Then that happened in the year of Jubilee. And Jubilee, it's, it was a time of rejoicing where everyone's debts were released and everything came back to the seller. For the seller, verse, verse 13, shall not return to what has been sold. And really, it's a foreshadowing just of what we were talking about this morning where Jesus pays a ransom and he bought us out of captivity. It's, that's, that's what debts do. That's what credit does in our life. life. It just brings us into captivity. In the year of Jubilee, there was just this great celebration because you were just freed of all your debts, you know, at that point. And, and thing, even things that you sold to pay for your debts came back to you. And it was a way, by the way, of of preventing the situation that happens throughout history in 99% of countries where the rich get richer and richer and richer and richer and they just buy up more and more and more and more land and just a few people own everything. And this is what the, God knew that was going to happen. Why? Because he knows that the eyes of man are never satisfied. So what does he put in, his, in the Old Testament law? Something, he puts literally in his law something to prevent that from ever happening. But here it says uh, no longer in Israel is that going to happen. Why? Because they're all, the land is no longer, it's in, it's in the hands of an enemy now. The Babylonians will take it over and the exile will be for 70 years. So it's saying, even though you still may be alive, seller, you're not going to be going back. You're not going to be getting back what you, um, what you gave. Verse 14, they have blown the trumpet and made everyone uh, ready, but no one goes to battle, for my wrath is on all their multitude. The sword is outside, the pestilence, the famine within. Whoever is in the field will die by the sword, and whoever is in the city, famine and pestilence will devour them. So this is why I tell people to remember um, Sunday, if Sunday nights is your only diet, you better be careful because... These, we're in a long series of Sunday night sermons where it's about God's judgment. And God's judgment is holy, but it's also very disturbing. But, you know, the Bible says if, it was not, if it's not for God's mercies, we would be consumed. And part of God's mercy is his judgment. If he doesn't come in and judge people for wickedness, their wickedness will consume them. And that's part of what is going on here. Verse 16, those who will survive will escape and be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning, each for his own iniquity. So there will be a remnant who escape who 
who, who recognize, wow, we have sinned. And then if you remember the verse from last week in chapter 6, they will recognize after they've escaped, they've escaped to other countries and they've realized, oh, how we've blown it. They will see the brokenness of God's heart. Remember, that's the, uh, actually, I, I, I put that one on the uh, projection screen last Sunday morning, but it's um, in, in chapter 6, the, where, where, uh, where the Lord just says in verse 9 of chapter 6, I was crushed by their adulteries. And it says they'll realize it when they are car- after they are carried away captive. And, and so, so oftentimes it takes the Lord dragging us into captivity somewhere after being in just living a life of sin for our eyes to open up and wow, have we sinned. And wow, did we break his heart. Verse, let's just go to 19. They will throw their silver in the streets. Their their gold will be like refuse, meaning garbage. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them. In Revelation, it says a pound of wheat is more expensive than a pound of gold in the time of tribulation. Can you imagine that? Things get so bad that a pound of wheat is more expensive than a pound of gold. I don't know how many history majors you are here, but before Hitler took power, the economy was so bad in Germany that people were carting around uh, bucketfuls of of the German currencies, not bucketfuls, wheelbarrowfuls of the German uh, currency. In Zimbabwe, someone gave me a dollar, uh, someone gave me a hundred million dollar bill, I I think it was, a hundred million dollar bill. Someone in church, some person from Zimbabwe, here I have a present for you. Here's a hundred million dollars. The thing is worth like three cents. Uh, is what it's worth uh, in Zimbabwe because the inflation has been uh, so bad there. But that's what it, it will be like in Jerusalem. They have been enjoying the prosperity that God had brought because of the faithfulness of their forefathers. But the Lord says, you've been living on deposits and those deposits are going to run out and don't want to sound too much like a broken record, but this country is running off the deposits of the faithfulness of the men and women who have preceded us. And unless there is revival, the deposits are going to run out. And praise the Lord, we, 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 we pray for revival and we know he's faithful and you know he's, he has us raised us up for a time just like we're in to be his people. But verse 20 says, as for the beauty of his ornaments, he set it in majesty, but they made it from it the images of their abominations, their detestable things. Therefore, I have made it like refuse to them. So kings of Israel, of Jerusalem, like King Ahaz, took the beauty of God's ornaments in the temple. I was just reading it this, this afternoon. Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, took the beauty of the ornaments and he made it into just images of, 
of pagan gods. That's what uh, they had done. Verse 21, I will give it as plunder into the hands of strangers and to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they shall defile it. I will turn my face from them, and they will defile my secret place, for robbers shall enter it and defile it. And that's just a reference to the fact that the temple that, that the Gentile nations, the non-Jews, the unbelievers would go in to that holy place in the temple, that place where the most holy place where only one person went once a year and that was the, a high priest and no one else was allowed all year long. But the Gentiles, the Babylonians would just go in there and defile it. Verse 23, make a chain for the land is filled with crimes of blood and the city is full of violence. Therefore, I will bring the worst of all the Gentiles and they will possess their houses, cause the pomp of the strong to cease and their holy places shall be defiled. Destruction comes. They will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster will come upon disaster, rumor upon rumor. They will seek a vision from a prophet. In other words, they will start to panic and go to the prophets and, and, and say, tell us something good. Tell us something at, the, at that point. But the something good won't come. Verse 27, the king will mourn, the prince will be clothed with desolation, and the hands of the common people will tremble. I will do to them according to their way, and according to what they deserve, I will judge them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. You know, the Lord deserves to be known. And he will be glorified. Whether it's the kindness of God that leads us to see who he is, that, oh man, he is great. J David said his gentleness has, has, has made me great. Why was, why was David great? Because he was a man after God's own heart. He knew that God was the Lord. But if it's not gentleness... It's the severity of the Lord. He's holy. He can't help but glorify his name. And he says, they shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, chapter 8. So this is another really fun Ezekiel chapter. And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month. As I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Ah, can you imagine that? So he is uh, sitting there with the elders of Judah, but he's not in Judah. He's in Babylon, but they had been stolen from their homes, chained up, and taken to Babylon. So he's sitting around, and... Chapter 8 leaps forward about 14 months. So he dates it here, and the date there, if anyone is interested, September 17th, 592 B.C., about four and a half years before Jerusalem is destroyed. It says that I'm sitting in my house. And we talked about this morning in Luke chapter 14. Jesus says, unless... 
a man, a woman forsakes everything they have, they cannot be my disciple. It doesn't mean that you just leave your house and, and, and go live as a pauper in the streets. It just means that everything you have is the Lord's. It's literally his. You don't really even... I don't see this sounds kind of strange. I don't, I, whenever I say my house, I, I, I'm not even comfortable saying that because it's not my house. It is not my house. It's God's house. But because I know I have to communicate with people, I use the term my house. But it's interesting here. You have this very wonderful man of God. He's sitting in his house. It's not a spiritual thing to get rid of all our possessions and live in rags. That's not spirituality ever in the Bible. Here Ezekiel is sitting in his house and apparently it's a big, a fairly big house because he, he has all the elders of Judah there. And it says, and then the hand of the Lord fell upon him. It doesn't say whether people saw this hand. And it says, then I looked and there was a likeness like the appearance of fire. From the appearance of his waist and downward, fire, and from his waist upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. Now, we know that this is a picture here of none other than Jesus, because in chapter 9, verse 8, uh, Ezekiel falls on his face, and he says, Ah, Lord God. So the... It is an appearance of Jesus Christ. When you see the appear, an appearance of God in the Old Testament, it is a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Verse 2, Then I looked, and there was a likeness, like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward fire, from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness. Verse 3, he stretched out the form of my hand and took me by a lock of my hair. Now, if you remember at the beginning of chapter 5, what happened? Anyone remember? Tanner, you of all people, tell us what happened at the beginning of chapter 5. What did he do with a sword? What did he do with his hair? He cut himself bald. <laughs> Sorry, Tanner, I'm not picking on you. <laughs> I just saw you back there and you had a big smile on your face. He cut himself completely bald, which priests were not even allowed to do lawfully. And he cut himself bald. Now, it's been about 14 months because this hand took him by a lock of his hair. And it says, the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. And I go, oh God, please, please, please do this with me. Come on, God. He talk, it says he took him in visions of God to Jerusalem to the door of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes me to jealousy. So it says through visions he was taken to Jerusalem. Now he is going to get a picture into what was actually taking place 900 miles away. It's like 
Lee Majors and the Six Million Dollar Man. You guys probably for, don't even remember him. I do. You know, in the 70s, the Six Million Dollar Man. He was the guy on TV. And he had a bionic eye. And he could see for, I think, thousands of miles. And that's what happens to Ezekiel. We're going to see he's actually going to be brought in and see things that are actually taking place. So it's not like a vision, the, the type of vision that like, needs interpretation that's not, that does not represent real historical events. He is going to be taken to see actual things that were happening. And we know that because he starts naming people by name. And it says, Behold, the glory of God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the plain. So God gives him the same vision that he had seen back in chapter 1, the vision that he saw in the plain, the vision of God, the same one. And you know, I do got to tell you, after walking with the Lord, um, I began walking with the Lord in January of 1988, 25 years ago, this, 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 this last month. And that's when I began to walk with the Lord. And you know, things happen over the years where, you know, you're, you're, you're seeking the Lord. And over the years, just as, be, as Jesus said would happen, there's the winds of doctrine come into the church and there's many people uh, claiming to represent God and they're doing this strange thing and this other person saying they're hearing from God and it turns out they weren't and you, you see some other thing, look, the Holy Spirit's doing this really crazy unique thing and it turns out it was just a, a, a sham and, and over the years, there is a danger of just being there is a danger of wanting like some new amazing thing <laughs> in your life, some amazing vision, some new thing to, to, to keep you going. But what I have found is God bringing me back again, again, again to that same vision I saw 25 years ago when I my friend was bugging me to start reading the book of John and I finally started reading it and all of a sudden it, it was like reading the word of God. It was like someone took an electric cable into my heart and it was turned everything on. It's like this is unbelievable. Someone took a broadband and plugged me in to the Lord and it's just that, that same vision where it's just Jesus, it's the cross, it's the resurrection, and it's the abundant life in him. And it's the wonderful sacrifice that he has done for us. That's what, that's what happens here. He gets, says has the same vision that he saw on the plane. And if, and, and if you guys, I just want to encourage you uh, as you're walking on with the Lord year after year, Man, just go back to the pure milk of the Word of God. That same vision he gave you in the beginning. 
He has the same vision. Verse 5, then he said to me, son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north. And there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. So he actually sees, he's taken back to uh, Jerusalem. Wait one second. I've got to cough here. He's actually taken back to Jerusalem. And it must have been a very emotional thing because remember, Ezekiel was a prophet, but he was also a priest. And priests started to work when they were 30 years old and he was taken before a few years before he was 30. And so every year going into Jerusalem for the feast as a young man, he was probably longing, wow, I'm going get, to get to work in that temple. This is going to be a wonderful thing. I'm in the priestly class. My father was a, a priest. My grandfather was a priest. And now I'm going to get to be a priest. He was yanked away from that. And so this must have been just an amazing thing to be taken back. And, and, and he sees the temple. He sees the north gate of the city. And in that north gate, um, it says there, he, he sees the image of jealousy in the entrance of the temple. Now, that was a that was a reference to an actual sort of pagan altar that they brought into the temple, into the entrance of the temple. And you, th you think, well, that's absolutely crazy. Well, no, you can just go back into Second Kings chapter 21, read about Manasseh, how he built altars to all the hosts of heaven right inside the temple. And then he, it says that he set a graven image of the grove, meaning an astro grove. Uh, astro was a, a goddess of sensuality, probably a phallic symbol right there in the temple. Now, Josiah had come in and taken the thing and uh, burned it and threw out ashes in the, book, uh, in the brook Kidron, but it could be that it was set up again. It says the image of jealousy in the end. God is a jealous God. The Bible says he's a jealous God. And he is jealous when he sees his children chase after anything that is going to bring them misery and destruction in their life. I mean, you know, it's as if whenever I'm explaining jealousy, I like the picture of a father who sees his, maybe would see a picture of his daughter being lured away into a life of prostitution by a pimp or something. There would be that jealousy burning. Oh, no, not, not, my, not my own daughter. And, and here it says the image of his jealousy, meaning his jealousy for his people, but also for his holiness, was aroused because of this image in, um, in the temple. Verse 6 says, furthermore, he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. And that's, that's an incredible picture there 
of a deliberate attempt on the part of the people just to make God go away. Make God and all his demands go away. All this stuff about holiness and the word of God and the stuff he wants us to do, we want to make it go away. And so here's what we're bringing into our life. And that's really ultimately what sin is all about. We bring in things into our life just to make God go away. I don't want to be under his authority. I don't want to be accountable to him uh, anymore. Um, and, and then at the end of verse 6, he says, now turn again, you will see greater abominations. So, so even though he's 900 miles away, God is giving him a walking tour of what is going on in Jerusalem. Verse 7, so he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and I saw, and there, every sort of creeping thing, abominable, be, uh, abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around the walls. Now, so he actually went through a hall in the temple and inside the temple they had in, in, in some inner chamber room there they had painted all kinds of idolatrous images all over the wall. When I was in China with my daughter Elise we went into Inner Mongolia and we went into uh, a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. We went in there. And this is what their walls looked like. There was, it was just absolutely horrifying. There was pictures of sexual acts of bestiality, humans and animals on the walls of this temple. <laughs> and all these, these images on the walls of the worship place and, 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 you know, and, and I was just thinking at the time, it's amazing how naive we are in America, how we've been saved from that. And just how, how much lower does, you know, people say all, all religions are the same, you know, Buddhism, Christianity, they all lead a path to God. Oh, really? Go and look at the walls that I were, w was looking at. Animals having sex with humans uh, on the walls? That, that leads to God? But the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, that's where when we leave the worship of the true God, that's where it goes eventually. And, and so, and, and, and Ezekiel, you can imagine this, this priest, this, this, this young man looking, wow, this is what I was going to get involved. Again, he thought it was the worst thing in the world when he was chained and dragged away 900 miles to Babylon. Now he's finding out, wow, I was rescued from this. This is what I was, I would have been pulled into this stuff. Verse 11, and there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Now, Shaphan was the guy who read, who was in Josiah, King Josiah's 
court, King Josiah was the last good king. And Shaphan was in his cabinet, was a, a holy, righteous man. But here his son is leading a procession of men worshiping in the midst of this terrible, terrible idolatry that is going on. And so it, all it takes is one generation. You know, it, it, I've, I've already mentioned King Ahaz. He was just one of the most wicked kings ever. He closed up the temple. He used the ornaments of the temple to build other idols to other gods. And he actually shut the doors of the temple. And he did himself child sacrifice and this type of thing. But his son, Hezekiah, the Bible says no one was as righteous as he was ever since. He, he destroyed the high places. Um, we talked about that last Sunday night. He, he was the most righteous. And he was the son of this wicked man. But the reverse can happen as well. That, you know, you can have a very, very righteous man, but within one generation, people have a free will. And they can go in completely the opposite direction because every person makes a choice. And you don't get into heaven because of the religion uh, uh, or the faith of your parents. And you don't go to hell because of the wickedness of your parents. You, you stand before God alone. And so one generation. And verse 12, it says, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. So they were doing what so many people do when things get really bad because of their own sin. They still go ahead and blame God. God, how could you have let all these uh, horrible things happen? Or how could there be a God if all these, in the midst of all these suffering and, and, and you know, people just turn to whatever idols in their life. And, and today it's not necessarily an idol that's a creeping thing on a wall, but it's, but it's one involving either sensuality or money or intellectualism or the same kind of things these idols represented are, are alive and well today. And it says, it, it, and he's taking, um, he's taking Ezekiel on this walking tour. Verse 13 says, and then he said to me, turn again and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. I mean, it's like, come on, it's going to get greater? Oh, please, no. Verse 14, so he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Who is Tammuz? Well, Tammuz was, there was a, a, a Babylonian part of their mythology in ancient Babylon was Nimrod, who was a Babylonian god. He was a hunter of souls of men. He took a wife, Samarinimus. She conceived a son, Tamas. And you actually have images of Samarinus, Samarinimus, or that's what her name was, with this baby that looks eerily similar, as I understand, to the Madonna and son. And it's a, it's a Babylonian image. 
And people, you know, see, see, all Christianity is, it's, it's related to the Babylonian myths. What do you mean? The Madonna and child, that's not a Christian thing. <laughs> that's a, someone made that up. Someone brought that into the church. Uh, and and, and it, it really is an imitation. Uh, and and Tamas, the son, grows up. He's gored by a wild boar. He dies. His wife prays for him. And he's, when he died, by the way, all the foliage also dies. So all the foliage, all the plants, everything dies when this, this, this tame has died. But his wife prays for him and he's resurrected with all the, and, and when he's resurrected, all the foliage all, all, all comes back to life. This is Babylon, this is, what, this is who this Tamas guy here shows up in Ezekiel uh, chapter eight. You can Google him and f- find all, all about this guy. You know, one of my children asked me a very good question the other day. How, you know, how do we know that the stuff we read in the Bible is any different than the, the, the myths that in mythology that you read about at school? That's an excellent, excellent question. And one of the ways I, um, by the way, it's, it's, it, it's good to encourage your kids to answer those questions. The worst thing, the Bible says, do not exasperate your children. One, thing, wh- one way to exasperate your children is, oh, come on, what are you questioning the Bible? How you, you should never do something like that. Shh. No, there's good answers to all this stuff. And one of the answers that I give is go, go read some of this stuff because they will have teachers who say, you see, the, you know, Old Testament has its myths and these other... Uh, mythologies, Babylon and, and Roman mythologies have go read some of these these myths. A guy dies and all the all the plants all around the world die at the same time. That's what they read like. They really do read like myths. You don't have detailed genealogies like you do in the book of Genesis. And one of the wonder, one of the reasons so many people read the Bible and, and it, it, it and they become Christians is that Wow, this really is ringing true, all of this. And, and, and so, but that is one, uh, that's who this Tamas is, and they are outright worshiping this Tamas. And consider the wickedness of it. He's a devil's imitation of Jesus Christ. That's who he is. And consider how that grieves the heart of God. So when Jerusalem was was um, when Jerusalem was utterly destroyed, some of the Psalms say, "How could this have ever happened? Why, why, Lord, why did you do this?" Well, the prophet Ezekiel knew, and he told them, "Do you realize what was going on behind closed doors in the temple? They were." bowing down and actually weeping. It says they were actually weeping in verse 14 for Tammuz, who is the devil's imitation of the Son of God. Wow. It's just levels of wickedness that our mind can't even comprehend here. But, but, you know, when God, when you see judgment, there are always reasons for the judgment. There, there are always reasons for the judgment that are absolutely holy and just. We may just not know what they are. 
But here, Ezekiel is given a picture of why the Lord's judgment was going to be so severe. Verse 15, then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again. You will see greater abominations than these. Verse 16, so he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun towards the east. So the image there, they actually had their backs against the Lord when they were worshiping the Lord when they were worshiping the sun god. And, 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 and really, that is a picture of sin, isn't it? That is a picture of a life of sin. In order to run after sin, we have to turn our backs on God. And that is what's going on here. Verse 17, and he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here, for they have filled the land with violence, and then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. So we read the Old Testament and some of these obscure verses like, okay, what does this one mean? It could mean some form of pharmacia drug use that they were using to, you know, the Bible calls witchcraft, in the Greek it calls it pharmacia because they used drugs to basically open up themselves to the demonic world. It could be something like that, but uh, scholars have different commentaries. We really don't know what this means. It's some kind of ritual, pagan ritual that they brought in from the nations around them. Verse 18, therefore I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Thank you, God, for sending your son, Jesus. I think of where it says, I think it's Isaiah says, he says, I looked and spanned the whole world for someone who could save the world and I could find none. So my own arm, so with my own arm, I brought salvation. Either God comes to save us or we're doomed. Either he sends his son into the world or we don't have a hope because there simply is no limit. If you take anything from this crazy, crazy chapter, it's God's word. It's a crazy God's word, but it's, it's, there's just no limit to where our sin could take us. And, you know, when you have a fear of God, it can be very healthy that, wow, this is where my sin will take me. I don't want to dare mess with the Lord. I want to stay close to him. He loves me. He hides me in the shadow of his wings. He uh, holds me by his right hand. He hides me in the cleft of the rock. I don't want to go outside and, and experiment with sin because, wow, look at where it can take me. I just, we thank, we thank the Lord for his salvation. This is what he saved us from, the cross 
This is what he died for too. That's what's amazing. You, you consider that as well. He saved us from this, but he also, these were actual sins committed by actual people. And this isn't fairy tales. They're, as I said, the, there's paintings like this in temples, religious temples actively used today. <laughs> and Jesus died for all of it, all of it. You know, it's just wonderful. We have someone who uh, who came, grew up Buddhist, was last semester was uh, was saved right here in our very midst. God's arm is not short. Jesus died for that too. All that wickedness in the in the in the walls of Buddhist temples or whatever kind of temple there is. And there's the the porn sites are pagan temples that you can visit just by turning on your computer. Jesus died for all of that. God poured out, that's why God poured out his fury. It, it, that's why Jesus said, I, I'm very distressed until I go through this baptism because he knew what he was paying. He knew for what. He knew about the sin that was coming upon him, past, present, and future. You can finish up this evening just with, um, we're going to end just the service now in prayer. 